0: Well, happy Mother's Day, mothers. Uh, it's good to see so many of you here. It's good to have my mom here, good to have my grandma here. It's always special when uh, Mama Sue's in the house, so I got to preach a little extra well today. But I could be terrible and she'd be like, that was so good. <laughs> so no matter what, I'm going to leave here feeling pretty good about myself today. So, um, but you know, I am especially aware, I don't know if it's because I'm a church planter and my heart is more for uh, a lot of down on their luck people that for many of you, Mother's Day is not an easy day. For many of you, Mother's Day is a hard day. Uh, maybe you've lost your mother this year. Maybe your mother isn't a part of your life. Um, there's so many things that could happen. And so I want you to know that um, if, you, if you don't have a mom or if your mom's not with us right now or, or whatever it may be, that, that you're loved and you're welcome here and that um, if you need to work through stuff, we're, we're here for you this morning. So wherever you are, On that Mother's Day spectrum, uh, I think you're in a good place. Because we're preaching on the end times today. So it's going to be a blast. You know, the world um, should have ended already, right? Like a whole bunch of times. My favorite crew, the Jehovah's Witnesses, man, they've, they've swung and missed nine times. So they have thought that the world would end in 1874. They were wrong there. So maybe it was 1878. Wrong. 1881. No, 1910. No, 1914 didn't happen, 1918 didn't happen, 1925 didn't happen. Their 1975 prediction was also wrong, and then 1984's prediction came and 1985 dawned, and the world did not end. But lest we think it's just cults and other religions who do this, our evangelical Christians have been susceptible to some uh, false starts on the end of the world, if you will. In 1988, there was a very popular book amongst evangelicals called Why the Rapture Is in 1988. And even though I believe WVU did play for a national football title that year, the rapture did not, in fact, happen. And how could we forget the only one I have a sharp memory of is December 21st, 2012, when the Mayan calendar ran out and so too would all of the sands of time. However, here we are in 2018. This morning we're tackling a few verses, just verses 3 through 13 in chapter 13, which are part of an extended discourse about the end times. On the surface, it is a confounding topic, a topic about which there is much widespread disagreement amongst Bible-believing Christians. It is, however, an important topic. It's a topic that gets an entire chapter right before Christ's crucifixion. Debated topics around the end times are these, like, is there a rapture? When does it happen? When will Christ return? When will the church be raptured? Will the church go through suffering here? Will the church be exempt from suffering here? Where will people who have already died be? When will they come back? And there is widespread disagreement amongst Christians. You have premillennials, amillennials, postmillennials, words that you've never heard before to describe sort of three broad camps that people might fall in. Um, I have opinions, but they're not worth much, so if you want to know my opinion, you can ask me after the sermon. Sure, on the surface, these things are so confusing, but when we all think about the end times, wherever you may be, you probably don't have much of a well-thought-out theology on this. Let's all agree on this one point for today's sake. Jesus, the true and better king, will return to earth and reign forever. Jesus, the true and better king, will return to earth and reign forever. The title of today's sermon is, A Better King Will Reign. In light of that truth, I think the main idea of our sermon this morning is refreshingly simple. Jesus calls his people to remain vigilant and faithful, embracing hardship as we take the gospel to the nations. Jesus calls his people to remain vigilant and faithful, embracing hardship as we take the gospel to the nations. Our text pretty much divides itself into two areas, I think, for our intents and purposes this morning. The first is uh, verses 3 through 8, and the second section is verses 9 through 13. The first sort of verses 3 through 8 all sort of fall under this heading of be vigilant. Be vigilant. Now, just for one moment, if you're looking with me in your Bibles, look at verses 1 and 2, because verses 1 and 2, we're not going to spend much time on them. They do set the scene uh, for where we'll be this morning. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The last sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago was when Jesus went into the temple and he cleaned house. He saw the rampant unrighteousness in the temple, and he had had enough of people turning the house of prayer for all nations into just a money pit. And so he goes in, he's throwing tables, he's kicking people out, and there was this great scene of Jesus bringing judgment upon the temple. And now we're at a peak of altitude of about 2,000 feet, right, and Jesus and some of his disciples are looking down at Jerusalem, and the disciples are just so overwhelmed by how beautiful the temple is, right? Historians of the day say that if you didn't see Jerusalem in her glory, you haven't seen a city before. That The buildings were just spectacular and were an absolute marvel of the ancient world. And so they're sort of marveling at how beautiful the temple is and how beautiful uh, the city of Jerusalem lie below them. But Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? These buildings made of just massive stones. There's not going to be one of those massive stones that will not be thrown down. So we pick up our text in verse 3, and as he said on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. I, one second. I love when like, Jesus says something, and it's clear that the disciples don't get it, and then they ask him about it. And I, I love that sort of window of time between when they hear him say something and when they ask him about it, because I bet they're just freaking out in their mind. Like, what in the world is he talking about? The temples are going to be... The stones are going to be thrown down. We're going to have to ask him about it. I'm not asking him. You're going to ask him? I'm, Peter's like, I'll ask him. You know what I'm saying? And so no one knows who's going to ask him what. And so they ask him. They say, you know, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they're asking him. They're saying, you're talking about the temple being torn down. Like, when's that going to happen? And-, and how are we going to know that's going to happen? Because to them, in their Jewish minds, the destruction of the temple was completely tied to What? The end of the world. So they're thinking, oh my goodness, this is crazy. We're living in these apocalyptic times. When is this going to happen? Like, when are these stones going to be thrown down? When's the temple going to be destroyed? We need to know because we've got to be prepared for the end of the world. And so Jesus answers them sort of this, he answers this sort of esoteric question with a very pointed answer. That's what I love about apocalyptic literature, things like Revelation. It seems so complicated, but it simply shows us one thing. Things aren't as they seem. I know it looks like Caesar reigns, but in reality, King Jesus reigns. So Jesus is is talking to them, and he begins to answer their question. Now... When he answers their question, the entire chapter that remains, there is much debate over what exactly Jesus has in mind when he answers their question. Is he speaking of something in the distant future or is he speaking of something in the immediate future that is about to happen? Because in A.D. 70, just some 40 years away... Rome is going to come to town in Jerusalem and just wreak havoc. They're going to flatten every building in the city, and the great temple will be destroyed in A.D. 70. So is Jesus, when he talks about this temple being destroyed, is he talking about the invading Roman army, or is he talking about something in the distance? Is he talking about the return of the Son of Man, and that is himself? Which one is it? I think the correct interpretation is to say, yes, it's both. Because the destruction of the temple teaches us something about the second coming of Christ. It's a sort of type, a foreshadowing of what will come. The disciples think that the destruction of the temple is going to usher in the end times, but Jesus is going to correct their thinking. And in the verses that follow, he's going to warn them of the danger of false prophets and how dangerous it can be to misread the significance of contemporary events. And both of those things are extremely helpful for us this morning. Verse 5, look with me now. So they've asked him, when are all these things going to take place? What are going to be the signs that we can look for? And Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. See, they're asking a question about this esoteric, when's this going to happen? Give us this answer. And Jesus just says, don't be led astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth." Pains. In verse 5 is a simple command, right? Watch out. See to it that you won't be led astray. There will be many prophets who come in the name of Christ saying, Yeah, we are coming sort of in the name of Christ, that, that his message we affirm, and we're adding on to that message. He's saying those people will come and you must not listen to them. They will lead many astray. Do we deal with this today? Do we deal with false prophets today? Do we deal with people who come in the name of Christ, but their teachings are not those of Christ? Absolutely we do. There are all kinds of cults. There's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a new one in town, Light of the World. There are all kinds of cults who come and they say we're coming in the name of Christ. We believe the same Bible. We believe the same teaching. But what they're doing is they are leading us astray from the word of God. Living in the information age, perhaps we are even more susceptible to false teachers than the disciples were in the first century, because there is a whole lot of money to be made on TBN. False teaching is a matter of life and death. What we believe, church, and who we listen to is a sign of our spiritual maturity, what we believe and who we listen to and whose voices we hear through the mass coming at us, that's a sign of our maturity in Christ. Just because someone claims that they're a Christian and their teachings are in the name of Christ does not mean that is the case. How can I know when someone is a false teacher? I don't know, but here's one thing I'll say. If you cling hard enough to the real thing, you'll be able to spot the fake thing. If you cling hard enough to the real thing, you'll be able to spot the fake thing. If you're in the Bible, and if you're in the Bible in community, right, if you're sitting under the preached word, if you are, 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 are attuned to what the Spirit is teaching us in the word of God, then when you hear someone say that Jesus wants you to be happy and wealthy no matter what, you can begin to say, well, was Jesus always happy and wealthy? When you hear someone say that there are multiple roads to God and that if you're a Christian, that's great. If you're a Muslim, that's great. If you're a Jew, that's great. If you're agnostic, that's great. If you're atheist, that's great. We're all going to this um, sort of ethereal kingdom together. You hear that and you think, is that true? And then you think, no one gets to the Father but through me. There is no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved. And so it's really not rocket science. You don't need an MDiv to spot false teachers. You simply must cling to the risen Christ and read his word, and study his word, and love his word. Watch out first for false teachers. But false teachers will often use one thing to really get at us, and they will use our sense of superstition. Verses four, or verses 7 through 8, Jesus says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom will rise against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus, looking at his disciples, knows that in the coming years, they're going to be rocked by controversy. Their worlds are going to be thrown upside down by political turmoil. And Jesus is saying there will be wars, and there will be rumors of wars. Imagine hearing this in A.D. 30-ish. Like, you have no idea that one day the whole world will go to war with each other. Twice. You have no idea that there will be nuclear bombs that can wipe out entire countries. You have no idea where humanity will go. And Jesus says, listen, disciples, things are going to get crazy from here on out, things have been crazy and things are going to keep going crazy. There's a whole lot more where those wars come from. There's a whole lot more earthquakes. There's a whole lot more famines. There's a whole lot of hurricanes and tornadoes and typhoons. A lot of things are going to happen over the next couple of thousand years. And Jesus uses this language of, uh, or Paul's going to use this language in Romans 8. He says that creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of man. The creation is groaning itself. That means that creation has been subjected to sin because of Adam's action. And like us, the creation is eagerly waiting for the return of the Son of God and when his people will be revealed. That we are sort of in this state of cosmic redemption that Jesus is going to one day make all things right. But until he does, there will be much struggle. Essentially, Christ commands this to his church. Don't try to figure out God's eternal timeline by connecting all the dots around you. And I can't say that strong enough to everyone who watches MSNBC and Fox News and CNN and listens to Rush Limbaugh and listens to all the radio right, left, wherever you may be. Don't try to connect God's eternal plan by looking at all the things around you and putting it all together on your own. Because God doesn't consult with the US government on what he's gonna do. War and chaos are here. Surely the end of the world is soon, right? Superstition makes us susceptible to false teachers. We've already talked about how many times the world was supposed to end already. But we must remember that God is sovereign over and active in world history and driving it towards his desired ends. As Christians, we must not buy into the hysteria of the day. By reminding the disciples, listen, you're going to see wars, you're going to see problems, you're going to see all this stuff. But remember, the end is not yet here. Jesus is equipping his disciples to be faithful and fruitful in a dangerous world. He's preparing them to face a turbulent world with unwavering faith. And we too live in turbulent times. But let me remind you this morning, church, our king will have his way. Nations will rise and fall, but King Jesus will reign forevermore. Don't jump the gun. Don't give in to false teaching. Don't give in to superstition. Jesus has things figured out. We get to trust him. I think a related point to this is that we are really good at trying to speculate about God's concealed will While we don't obey his revealed will. So in other words, we're really good at trying to figure out like things specifically. Where does God want me to be in five years? What does God want me to do in 10 years? When is Jesus coming back? When is this going to happen? We're really good at trying to figure out what God's got for us out in the future. Things that we don't know and we can't know right now. When God has given us his word... When God's given us his revealed will, what's the will of God? Your sanctification. God is more worried about who you are than where you are and what you know. And God wants to transform you and mold you into the image of Christ, his son. Where you are angry, he wants you to be gracious. He wants you to be kind. He wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to be patient. He wants you to have self-control, that this is God's revealed will for our lives, that we are molded into the image of God. Let's be less about speculating about what God might do and understand what God is doing in us and through us. Now, verses 9 through 13, there's a similar command. It it begins with another command. what? But be on your guard. Be on your guard. So if the last section began, see that no one leads you astray. This next section begins, but be on your guard. Why? For they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. There will be turmoil in the world, we saw in the last section. But in this section, we see that the disciples will not be exempt. You will be beaten, Christ tells them. You will stand before kings for my sake. The beatings of the Christian are meant for their Lord. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. We're going to finish with this thought. So let's keep moving. That's really, really important. But we're going to finish with that idea. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you were to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour for it's not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful truth that Jesus is teaching his disciples. When when you're dragged before kings, when you begin to be nervous, right? When you're freaking out because you are somewhere you never thought you'd be, and you know you don't have the power and the ability to say the right words. When you get there, Jesus teaches, trust me, because you're not gonna be the one to speak, but the Holy Spirit is gonna speak through you. Now let's zoom out for just a moment and remember where we are on the timeline of redemptive history. Jesus has not yet died, and Jesus has not yet resurrected, and Jesus has not yet ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit has not yet come at Pentecost. So when Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit is going to speak through you, they got to be thinking, what in the world do you mean by that? Because they don't yet know the fullness of what's going to happen to them in the months to come. They don't know that very, very soon, Jesus beside them won't be their scenario. That rather than that, the Holy Spirit, God himself, the third person of the Trinity, will be inside them and indwelling them and empowering them for God's mission. And I think it's worth noting that God already has the provision in mind for the struggle they're going to face. God already has the provision in mind for the struggle they're going to face. And in Christ, we can confidently say this morning that the same is true for us. Because in Christ, God has given himself to us that whatever may come, whatever struggle we may go through, that we have the risen Lord with us, that the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of us. God already has in himself the provision for every future struggle. It's true for the disciples and it's true for you because Christ is for us. Verses 12 and 13, and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father is child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Happy Mother's Day. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be Saved, Verse 12, there will be great conflicts in the world between kingdoms and nations. There will be conflict between sort of you and governments. But even more intimately, this gospel message is going to turn brother against brother. It's going to turn mother against daughter. And this gospel message is going to rip some families apart. One of the most humbling things when we go on our mission trips to India is to meet with brothers and sisters whose faith has cost them everything they have ever held dear. To meet with someone who is not welcome in their home again. To meet with someone whose parents have a fatwa, meaning that if they are seen, they should be killed when they're seen on their lives Every year at Secret Church, we just had it a couple of weeks ago. It's like a six-hour Bible study that we simulcast every year. We pray for a different uh, people group. And this year we prayed for the Malays. And uh, the Malays, the people of Malaysia, um, it's illegal for a Malay to convert. So if you're a white dude like me in Malaysia, you can be a Christian. You can go to church. You can put a Jesus sign up, whatever you want to do. Like, it's all fair. But if you're a Malay... You can't become a Christian because to be Malay is to be Muslim. And it's hearing stories about the heartbreak that it is when a Malay decides to be a Christian. But here's the danger for a Malay. Not only is a Malay not allowed to be a Christian, but no other people group is allowed to share the gospel with a Malay. And so there are all kinds of Chinese people in in Malaysia. And so there are Chinese churches sort of all over the place. But if a Malay walks into a Chinese church, guess what? That Chinese church is now in great danger from the government because a Malay is in their midst. So I was absolutely heartbroken when we were praying because I put myself in the shoes of a Malay. And I hear the gospel, and I believe the good news of Jesus, that he came, he lived a perfect life, he died a substitutionary death, he rose again, and he calls me to repentance. I believe that message, and I share it with my family, and I'm kicked out. So now I read the Bible, right, and I find out that there's um, a place for me, Though I've lost my physical family, there's a spiritual family for me. And so you walk into a church, but you walk in to find out they don't want you either. Because you are a threat to them. You're a danger to them. And my heart was broken for so many in parts of the world who navigating the social realities when they become a Christian is so Difficult and so painful. Jesus tells his disciples, You're going to be hated by all people for my name's sake. It's true for believers in Malaysia and it's true for believers in West Virginia. Obedience to Jesus will come at great cost. If obedience to Jesus has never cost us anything, we have to wonder are we being Obedient to Jesus. Jesus says, You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Here's the beautiful note that we end on. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's think about what this does not say first the one who raised their hand at church camp when they were six years old but never followed me for a second of their adult lives will be saved. Does the text say that? No. Does it say the one who followed me as long as people cheered for them while they were doing it? I don't think it says that either. The one who followed me as long as they understood everything I was asking them to do. It doesn't say that. But if you start to think you need to be perfect, take heart. It doesn't say this either. The one who is perfect will be saved. It doesn't say that. The one who has it all together will be saved. The one who understands every aspect of end times theology will be saved. It doesn't say that either. The one who never has any doubts, so the one who never stumbles, stumbles and falls will be saved. No. The one who endures Will be saved. God's grace is irresistible. He is faithful to finish what He started. We might be wayward children, but He is a faithful Father. Church, I exhort us this morning to endure to the end, even if it's with a limp. You'll get bruised and knocked down and beaten as you run this race of life, but the scriptures just say hold on to Jesus and he will get you there. I think of Paul's words to the Corinthian church. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. Let's go back to verse 10. Verse 10 says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The commands to the disciples to be vigilant and faithful extend to us this morning. Why? Because the same gospel mission they were on is the same gospel mission that we are on. When will Jesus come back? I have no idea. But I do know this. We would be a lot better off sharing the gospel in preparation for that day than studying blood moons in preparation for that day. We need to stop trying to make sense of what is unclear and start embracing what is clear, that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. How are we doing? Like, how are we doing on that? Well, we're we're, we're doing okay, but I want to challenge us as members of the American church today that we have more money, we have more resources, we have more social power than we've ever had at any point in world history, and we don't really see the gospel going forward with any more fervor than it did 2,000 years ago. The early church could do a whole lot with very little, and we tend to do very little with a whole, whole lot. We need to be vigilant that there are false teachers who want us to think that the gospel doesn't need to go to the nations. It's all about making you feel nice. It's all about you starting a happy little family and going to Mother's Day services together and just loving each other. That the gospel has nothing to say about the 10-year-old boy in Saudi Arabia who's never heard the gospel and will die and go to hell until he does. God's heart is for us, but God's heart is for the nations. We must watch out for false teachers who try to convince us that God doesn't care about them. We must watch out for superstitions that cause us to think and think and think. In in the words of the Apostle Paul, he says, they're always pondering but never arriving. They're always thinking about theological ideas. They're always pondering the depths of these things. But they're never arriving on truth that actually moves their feet. Don't give in to superstition. Be vigilant and be faithful because we're still on this gospel mission. Later in the chapter, at the very end of his discussion on the end times, right before he's going to be delivered over to be arrested, arrested, killed, and then ultimately resurrected, and we know the rest of that story. Jesus says this, and worship team, if you guys want to come on up. Concerning the day or the hour about his return, concerning the day or the hour, if you want to look down, it's in verses 32 to 37. Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, Jesus says, like, when I will return, the angels don't know. You know what? I don't know, but only the Father. Verse 33, be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all stay awake. Stay awake. Church, in a world that wants to put us to sleep, spiritually speaking, stay awake. Christ has come. His heart is for all people. The text says: the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Flip over in your Bibles to Matthew 24:14 and underline that passage, that's that verse. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations as a sign. The gospel of the kingdom must first be proclaimed to all nations as a sign. And then what? And then the end will come. I don't know what all nations exactly means. We speculate about what that means. We think it means every sort of people group that has a similar uh, language and similar culture. And so in mystiology, we think about where are the peoples of the earth? Um, Who are the people groups of the earth? Have they heard the gospel yet? How are we getting the gospel to them? And there was a moment for me where this came to life. We were in India, and we had flown into... um, We'll delete this part from the recording just for safety's sake, but names are important. We flew into Bhopal, and then... We took an overnight train to Jabalpur. Uh, It's a really small city of like 3 million people. Um, We get there and we get to a training that we're hosting for pastors and church leaders. And uh, good news for me, was terrible news for me, they only were doing it in Hindi. I don't speak a lick of Hindi, so I'm just sitting in the 125 degree church building, um, getting ready to have lunch with my hands. Uh, burning up. I'm not hungry. They're bringing us tea to drink that's hot. I'm just kind of miserable. I'm honestly sitting there, like, I don't understand a the word these guys are saying. I don't know what in the world's going on. I'm just kinda of sitting here like a not on a log, like like I'm, you know, back home at church myself. And like, um, someone said something in Hindi, I didn't pick it up, obviously, and our team leaders' eyes kind of perked up, right? And so after the meeting, I grabbed them and said, Craig, what you seem to get pretty excited when this guy said something to you. He said, yeah, I did. Because he told me that he went and shared the gospel with the XYZ people group. He said that people group was one that we had listed as unreached and unengaged. And now we know for a fact that that people group has heard the gospel. And I'm sitting there watching this, man. And it's like stuff you read about happening in front of your very eyes. And I haven't been the same. This gospel of the kingdom must go to all nations. And as soon as, presumably, I don't know this for sure, but presumably, as soon as the last elect soul repents, as soon as the last nation, the last people group has heard, Christ will split open the eastern sky. And he will return to reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Church, let's be awake. Holly and I were cornered by some financial advisors. I don't know if they are or not, but helping us plan for retirement, you know. I've been going to the meetings with them. And um, if that's a scam, someone tell me before I leave. I, don't, I haven't given them any information yet, so stop me. But uh, he asked me about retirement, you know. And I, I'm sure I'll retire in some capacity one day. But I long for um, sort of a, a generation of Christians who say, retirement's cool, I'll retire from my job maybe. But when it comes to gospel ministry, I'm going to die with my boots on. When it comes to gospel ministry, I'm going to die where it matters most. And the stories of missionaries 200 years ago who packed their bags in their coffin testify to the grace of God and the love of God for all people. Would you pray with me? Father, on this Mother's Day, I'm so thankful that wherever we may be and whatever relationship we may have with our immediate family, that you love us I'm thankful for my mother and grandmother who have modeled a love for the gospel. And I pray for all of us, God, that as we think about the days to come, right, as we think about the next few weeks, the next few days, and then as we think about you know, the next few decades and centuries, that we won't be those who speculate endlessly, but we will be those who obey endlessly. Father, help us grow in maturity as we read your word. Help us grow in maturity as we gather for worship. Help us grow in maturity as we confess our sins to one another, so that we won't be tossed to and fro by cunning doctrines of false teachers so that we won't be superstitious Christians who live in fear of the other and put our hope in political power, but that we will be followers of you who know that we are heirs of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus, you, as we've seen throughout this series, are a better king. And you're a better king who will return to reign forever and ever. Give us a heart for the nations. Give us a heart for our neighbors who haven't heard the gospel. Give us a heart for our parents, our friends, our siblings who are far from you this morning, knowing that eternity is at stake. Help us, Lord, to stay awake when we feel like sleeping. In Christ's name, we ask these things.